In the year 2003, Chris Hedges published a New York Times article, quote, what every person should know about war. Hedges asked the question, what is a war? His answer, war is defined as an active conflict that has claimed more than 1,000 lives. And given that answer, here is a related question. Has the world ever been at peace? Hedges' answer, of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them, or just 8% of recorded history. How many wars were there in the last century? Here's a partial list. 1898 to 1901, the Boxer Rebellion. 1899 to 1902, the Boer War. 1904 to 1905, the Russo-Japanese War. 1910 to 1920, the Mexican Revolution. 1912 to 1913, the First and Second Balkan Wars. 1914 to 1918, World War I. 1915 to 1918, the Armenian Genocide. 1917, Russian Revolution. 1918 to 1921, Russian Civil War. 1919 to 1921, Irish War of Independence. 1927 to 1937, Chinese Civil War. 1933 to 1945, the Holocaust. 1935 to 1936, the Second Italo-Abyssinian War. 1936 to 1939, the Spanish Civil War. 1939 to 1945, World War II. 1945 to 1990, Cold War. 1946 to 1949, the Chinese Civil War resumes. 1946 to 1954, the First Indochina War. 1948, Israeli War for Independence. 1950 to 1953, the Korean War. 1954 to 1962, the French-Algerian War. 1955 to 1972, the First Sudanese Civil War. 1956, the Suez Crisis. 1959, the Cuban Revolution. 1959 to 1975, Vietnam War. 1967, the Six-Day War. 1979 to 1989, the Soviet-Afghan War. 1980 to 1988, the Iran-Iraq War. 1990 to 1991, the Persian Gulf War. 1991 to 1995, the Third Balkan War. 1994, the Rwandan Genocide. And friends, that is just a partial list of one century. And you can do that for every century of human existence. Thus far in the 21st century, things don't appear to be any more peaceful. Did I say 20th or 21st century? We've already, we have already witnessed the Second Congo War, the Syrian War, the Darfur conflict, the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, the war against Boko Haram, the Yemeni Civil War, and the ongoing Ukrainian conflict, which began back in 2014. The 21st century actually opened with us, transfixed to our television screens, watching repeated footage of modern jets slamming into the Twin Towers and into New York, in New York City. An hour and 42 minutes after impact, both massive buildings were reduced to smoldering ruins. A third airliner roared over our nation's capital and exploded into the Pentagon. 
The wreckage of a fourth was strewn across a field near Shanksville, Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And we remember precisely where we were when the news reached our ears. Nearly 3,000 lives were lost when the Twin Towers crumbled. They were gone in an instant. And friends, that was actually just the beginning. According to the Watson Institute at Brown University, 929,000, nearly a million people have died since 9-11 and the ensuing wars and their side effects. And that includes 387,000 civilians. Some 38 million people, 38 million people have been displaced from their homes as war refugees since 2001. And how many Ukrainians will be added to that number? Do we even grasp this number, or is it just a statistic? If you would take the entire population of South Carolina, over 5 million people, and multiply by 7, you are still not at 38 million. Take the entire population of South Carolina... Add the populations of Arkansas, Mississippi, Kansas, New Mexico, Nebraska, Idaho, West Virginia, Hawaii, New Hampshire, Maine, Montana, Rhode Island, Delaware, North and South Dakota, Alaska, and Vermont. Displace the entire populations of those 18 states in 20 years, and that's how many people have been displaced in wars since 9-11. And friends, when did all this killing and conflict begin? If you have followed our progress through the Scripture on Wednesday nights, you know the answer. Ultimately, it goes back to two brothers, Cain and Abel. All conflict between human beings, all killing, is conflict between brothers. Whether it's George Floyd and the three former police officers that were convicted this last week, or Vladimir Putin and the Ukrainians, all human conflict is brother against brother. Vladimir Putin quite literally views Ukrainians as one people with the Russians, even while he bombs their cities. Putin, are you your brother's keeper? Yes, and Ukrainian blood is even now crying out to God from the ground. I want to ask a very simple question today. Whose side is God on in the conflict in Ukraine? Whose side is God on? Friends, we better get a good answer to that question if we are going to pray scripturally. How do you pray about Ukraine unless you know whose side God is on? Right? So whose side is God on? Before answering that question, let's ask a different question. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Well, let's turn to Romans 13. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you 
how I feel about this situation. As I mentioned a moment ago, I am not well-versed in international relations. And friends, I do not have expert opinion. And I actually know very little about Ukraine. All right? So I'm not coming to you today as an expert in global affairs. Not at all. I don't pretend to be some sort of expert. Nevertheless, my natural, instinctive sympathies are with Ukraine. Ukraine seems to be the clear victim in this conflict. Ukraine seems to have genuinely sought peace. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And I know that God hates violence. That God hates war. Psalm 11 and verse 5 says this. Listen to these words. His soul hates the wicked. And notice it doesn't say the sin. His soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence. There's no distinction between the sin and the sinner. The psalmist is saying he hates the one who loves violence. God hates the doer of violence. There's no way around that. The Ukrainians are experiencing a violent, aggressive takeover of their country. So I think that I have biblical reason to support Ukraine. But I do know that God permits war. And that war does, in fact, involve violence. Is this a little bit confusing to us? Has God ever commanded war, even though it involves violence? So let's talk for just a moment about just war theory. Just war theory has a long history in the Christian intellectual tradition that includes great minds like Augustine and John Calvin. Just war theory has been an integral part of Western political theory. And just war theory is taught by leading Christian ethicists today. Despite Jesus' commendation of the peacemaker, theologians have nevertheless pointed out that God himself, in certain circumstances, authorized war as a means to dealing with enormous evils and restoring peace. Consequently, Christians have insisted that when certain criteria are met, War can be prosecuted by legitimate governments. And Christian ethicists have delineated up to eight criteria. I'm not going to go through all eight, but I'll mention this morning five. First, there must be a just cause. For example, war may be justified if it involves preventing large-scale massacres or the preserving of human rights for large numbers of people. Invading a country and toppling a dictator who is butchering his citizens may be necessary. Secondly, war should be fought with just intentions. It's not merely a matter of having a just cause if you have a hidden agenda. In other words, we don't topple a brutal dictator, but all the while we are hoping for economic gain or land acquisition or personal fame. 
all of which it seems to me that Mr. Putin may be interested in. Third, war also comes as a last resort. When all legitimate means of conflict resolution have been exhausted, radical action may be necessary. Fourth, just war theory weighs the proportionality of cost. The total good achieved by victory should outweigh the total evil and suffering caused by the war. And that, of course, is very hard to calculate. And fifth, war should also be fought by just means. Wiping out whole civilizations right off the map by the use of nuclear weapons or engaging in biological warfare that kills hundreds of thousands of innocent bystanders are generally thought to be unjust means. Now, I'm not here this morning to develop a whole theory of just war theory. My point is simply this. Christian theologians and philosophers really through the centuries have recognized the legitimacy of war in some cases. We live in a fallen world. And the fact is, evil must be restrained. Moreover, Romans 13 is clear that rulers are to be a terror to evildoers. That is Paul's assumption in Romans 13 and verse 3. Look at the text. This is the way it's supposed to be with rulers. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. That's the ideal. Evil men should fear good God-ordained government. Further, God does in fact give the power of the sword to the ruler for the sake of preserving good. Look at verse 4. For he, that's the ruler, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is, the ruler, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So friends, God can and does use the state to strike down evil. And that happens both in domestic and international circumstances. The fact is, there are countless biblical examples of God using nations at His pleasure to restrain evil. But having said all that, it is not clear to me that Mr. Putin is engaged in a just war in Ukraine. I don't see it. It is not clear, in particular, that he has a just cause or just intentions. And friends, I say that having taken the time to read a translation of the speech that he delivered to the Russian people before launching an invasion in Ukraine. It's worth taking your time to actually read it. So friends, at least from my perspective, and this is my perspective, as I look at the situation in Ukraine through the lens of traditional Christian just war theories, my sympathies lie with Ukraine. And I'll be happy if Ukraine wins. And what if they don't? Well then, whose side is God on? Okay, so if Ukraine loses, whose side is God on?
Whose side is God on? Just war theory may give me a biblical pattern of thinking about this war. But does it really tell me whose side God is on? If Russia wins, does that mean that I pick the wrong side? Is this difficult? Is this challenging for us? Well, whose side was God on in the 40 years, I'm sorry, the 40 wars in the 20th and 21st centuries that I just mentioned earlier? Whose side was God on? And how would you know whose side God is on? Does God even take a side? What I want to do is go back to the Old Testament and ask this question, whose side was God on in the Old Testament? Let's turn back to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. I dare say that our instinctive response is to assume that God was always on Israel's side. Isn't that kind of how we read the Old Testament? Let me give you a little background so you understand what's happening here in Joshua. 600 years before Joshua launched an invasion of Canaan, God promised Abraham to give his descendants the land. It was the promised land. Abraham, just go walk the length and the breadth of the land. I'm going to give it all to you. God promised to make Abraham a great name and a great nation and to give him that land forever. And God promised to bring Abraham's children up out of the iron furnace of Egypt and to forge them into a covenant nation. And God struck down the mightiest war machine the ancient Near East has produced with ten devastating plagues, followed by a wall of water that collapsed on Pharaoh's soldiers. God miraculously fed the infant nation in the wilderness for some 40 years. He gave them water gushing from a rock. God gave them a sanctuary for worship. He gave them the Urim and the Thummim that they might be able to communicate with Him and know His mind. And when Moses placed his hands on Joshua at the end of Deuteronomy, God gave the new leader the spirit and the wisdom of Moses to lead his people to victory in the promised land. So whose side is God on? And notice how God encourages Joshua in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. They're going in. They're going to take the land. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, 
For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, friends, if you were about to go into battle against a formidable enemy, wouldn't those words give you comfort? You better believe they would. And don't forget, the inhabitants of the land had walled cities and impressive armies and horses and chariots, all of which Joshua lacked. This was a David and Goliath scenario. Joshua was surely the underdog. And there's no question Ukraine is the underdog in the fight with Russia. And I think our natural tendency is to pull for the underdog, right? Friends, is it just not clear from everything that I've said that God is on the side of Joshua, right? If there was ever a clear case that God has taken a side, it's got to be Israel. It's got to be Joshua's side. So Israel crosses the Jordan, and the waters roll back supernaturally. God's on their side. Joshua encamps at Gilgal. But before Joshua surrounds and destroys Jericho, he has a strange encounter. He meets a man whom commentators take to be a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus, or Yahweh. He sees a man with a sword drawn in his hand. And let's notice the text Joshua chapter 5. Joshua's about to go on. He's about to conquer. Joshua 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, Joshua 5, 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Well, who is this warrior? If you're about to go into battle and you see a warrior with a sword drawn in his hand standing between you and the enemy gate, all right, what question are you going to ask? You're going to ask the very question that Joshua asked. Keep reading. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Well, whose side are you on? I'd ask that same question, and so would you. Whose side are you on? God, whose side are you on? Verse 14, and he said, No. No? Well, what do you mean, no? Did you see that coming? Of course you did. You've read it the passage before, right? <laughs> but really, you don't expect that, given everything that we've seen going all the way back to Abraham for 600 years. Are you for us or the enemy? No. What do you mean, no? Now listen to the, how the NIV translates this. I think it really does well. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. What do you mean, neither? 
So friends, what are you going to do with that? We've got 600 years of history dating back to Abraham where God has been delivering Israel and promising them the land. And Joshua, of course, if we just keep on reading, is going to see Jericho's walls fall down flat. That's supernatural. Joshua didn't do that. God did that. So, is God for them or against them? What does this mean? No, neither. Well, keep reading. Verse 14. But I am the commander of the army of Yahweh, or the Lord. That's who this guy is. I'm the commander of Yahweh's armies. Well, who can that be but Yahweh? Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Well, friends, that's what Yahweh told Moses at the burning bush. Take off your sandals. You're in a holy place. Joshua, remove your sandals. You are in the presence of Yahweh himself. And at that very moment, Israel, after 600 years of waiting, at the very moment they are about to conquer the promised land, Yahweh shows up with all of his angelic host, and he commands Joshua, okay, remove your sandals. And Yahweh says, I'm not on either side. What does that mean? You know, friends, this whole dramatic scene just transforms our whole perspective. God has his own agenda and always has. God, in fact, has his own angelic army. And believe me, he doesn't need our troops. One angel in one night destroyed 185,000 men. And God has millions of those angels. Now, Joshua is looking at his immediate circumstance. He was looking at one battle. His whole preoccupation was Jericho, so choose sides. But when Joshua suddenly encounters Yahweh and his army, his whole perspective changes. Oh, what do you say to your servant? What do you say to me? In other words, the question is not whose side is God on. The question is, are you on God's side? That's the question. That's the question, Joshua. Whose side are you on? And Joshua responds correctly, you, I, I'm the servant here. I'm the servant. And friends, you, you have no business asking whether God is on your side. If I can just say it that way. Your, your duty is to humble yourself in the presence of God and align yourself with his purposes. When you are aligned with his purposes, then you're on God's side, he's on your side. But you really, your duty is to say, not, God, are you on my side? But no, I'm going to be on your side, God. That's our duty. God has his own agenda. So friends, here's our problem. We like, we like to pull God down into our little situations here in life. We want to draw God down on our level. All we can see is the enemy wall in front of us. And God becomes a genie in a bottle who grants us all of our wishes, right? He's always on our side. He's like Aladdin's genie. He's powerful, sure, but he must comply with all my wishes. He has no other choice. 
And friends, that whole approach to God is totally inappropriate. That's not how it works. So in that context, let's just talk about reality. Friends, Israel was a corrupt nation. Joshua was the leader of a corrupt nation. Abraham received God's promises and engaged in despicable activity. God told Abraham, this time next year, your wife Sarah will bear a son. And Abraham turned his wife over to the adulterous harem of Abimelech. What are you doing, Abraham? The 12 tribes were sired by corrupt men, guilty of lying, enslavement, prostitution, and adultery. The 12 tribes. God had no sooner redeemed Israel and delivered his law at Sinai, and they went a whoring after a golden calf. They questioned whether God cared for them even after gleaning his manna right off the desert floor. The same day. They grumbled and complained constantly. They offered strange fire before the Lord. And at this point, they have just completed a 40-year exile in the wilderness for their rebellion. And we know the story. They're going to go into the promised land and slip right into idolatry. Yes, it's true that God helped Israel. That is clear. But don't think that God took Israel's side because the nation was morally superior to her neighbors. Do you realize that God tolerated the iniquity of the Canaanites for at least, at least 1,600 years? That's a long, long time. He tolerated that, that iniquity for some 1,600 years and finally he sent Joshua in to root it all out. And in half that time, 800 years, God was so disgusted with Israel's iniquity that he, sent, that he sent the Assyrians and the Babylonians in to root it all out again. Now friends, I do not believe that Mr. Putin has a just cause for invading Ukraine. But if you were to ask God, well, whose side are you on, Russia or Ukraine? Which one is morally superior? He'd say no. God doesn't take sides with wicked nations. God rules them, we are told, with a rod of iron. So friends, let's not forget that we are dealing with two corrupt nations. It's always the case. Whenever nations go to war, you're dealing with corrupt nations. There are no other kinds. We are dealing with two corrupt nations. Have we forgotten how many evangelicals were up in arms about Hunter Biden's dealings with the notoriously corrupt nation of Ukraine? That wasn't so very long ago. We were very, very upset about all the corruption in Ukraine. In 2012, Ernst and Young listed Ukraine as one of the three most corrupt nations in the world. Ernst and Young. In 2015, The Guardian called Ukraine the most corrupt nation in Europe. In 2016, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State uh, Victoria Nuland urged Ukraine to start prosecuting corrupt officials. She said it's time to start locking up people who have ripped off the Ukrainian population for too long, and it is time to eradicate the cancer of corruption. And did you know there's a whole Wikipedia page out there titled 
corruption in Ukraine. Don't look at it now. It's out there, all right? Now, having said that, there does seem to be some evidence of anti-corruption forces moving the country in a better direction, and I surely hope so. I hope that's the case in every country, including my own. But the fact is that every individual, every tribe, every tongue, every nation has fallen and corrupt. There are no other kinds. We all stand in need of redemption. So to ask God, well, whose side are you on, is the wrong question. You might as well ask God which sinners he favors most. Or whose corruption do you most support? No, 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 wrong question. God did indeed fight for Israel, but not because Israel was morally superior to any other nation. He fought for Israel because he sovereignly determined to bring his Redeemer into this fallen world through Israel's seed. That was God's agenda. And God's agenda is always the gospel. God is not in the business of taking sides between corrupt nations. His business is to redeem the nations after he has dashed them to pieces with a rod of iron. That's what God is up to. Now, with all that in mind, turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And let's ask the question again, whose side is God on? Is he for Joshua or the Canaanites? Israel or Babylon? Russia or Ukraine? Well, friends, that's the wrong question. God has his own agenda. Now take off your shoes and worship me. And let's read the words of Nebuchadnezzar whom God raised up to destroy Israel and to reverse, get this, to reverse Joshua's conquest of Canaan. Do you realize that? God raised up Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan, frankly, to do to Israel what Israel did to the Canaanites. That's exactly what happened. So whose side has God on? Is he on Israel's side or Nebuchadnezzar's? Let's go 800 years in the future. Is he now on Israel's side or Nebuchadnezzar's side? Friends, the answer is still no. Listen to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4, verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 34, lifted up my eyes to heaven after he'd been humbled by God, And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven. There's your armies of heaven again. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and look at this, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar put it bluntly, we don't get the question, God. We don't get to say, God, what have you done? Whatever the outcome is in Ukraine, we don't get to say, God, well, what have you done? That wasn't the outcome I wanted. No one gets to say, God, what have you done? That's equivalent to saying, God, whose side are you on? And God's going to say, neither. I have my own agenda. Thank you very much. God does not have to answer our questions. So friends, all that to say, yes, from a human perspective, I am sympathetic with Ukraine. I am for the underdog. I am for the country that seems to be getting attacked without a just cause. 
And friends, I'm appalled by the images that I see of buildings exploding and children sleeping down there in those bunkers. It's, it's terrible. And God hates violence. And I hate seeing these weapons of destruction just rolling through Ukrainian streets and crushing everything in sight. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, and I am for the politicians seeking peace regardless of their political alignments. And frankly, I find myself hoping that Mr. Putin is humiliated on the world stage. And I think I have biblical justification for thinking all that. I think I really do. I think I can get all that from Romans 13. All right? But for me to draw the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth who is advancing his gospel agenda over the wreck of nations and empires down into this local affair and to demand that I know whose side he's on, that's a totally inappropriate demand. I'm not allowed to say, God, what have you done? I can fight for justice. I can and I should. I should pursue peace. I should seek the welfare of the city. Jeremiah said so. But I cannot say, well, God, what have you done? Whose side are you on anyway? God has his own side. And my sole duty is to perfectly submit myself to his will. Take off your shoes and worship. So friends, where does this leave us? How do we pray for Ukraine? I have yet to answer that question. Here's my answer. How do you pray for Ukraine? You have to answer that question with a question. Here's the question. God, whose side are you on? And no, I am not contradicting myself. You need to ask that question, but you need to ask that question in a very different context. Let me show you that context. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. The Bible does, in fact, tell us that God takes a side. Were you prepared for that? If you were thinking, whose side has God on in terms of one corrupt nation or another... The problem is they're all corrupt. And Psalm 2 speaks of the nations collectively throwing aside God's moral restraints. They must all, every last one of them, be subdued with a rod of iron. So God isn't taking sides when it comes to nations. He's subduing them all. And friends, can I just say that America, despite all of her Christian influence, has engaged in corrupt activity from its founding? The Puritans and pilgrims engage in a brutal slaughter of Native Americans in King Philip's War, the deadliest war per capita in American history. The Plymouth Colony sent Native Americans into slavery in the Caribbean. We have displaced people through war just like every other nation. Manifest destiny from a native nation's perspective, looks like genocide, displacement, and starvation on an Indian reservation. We are not innocent. And my sympathy for Ukraine's people 
extends to Native Americans. Native Americans from sea to shining sea. Even Christian Indians were gunned down and enslaved by Puritans and pilgrims. We are not innocent. Friends, there simply is no such thing as a perfect nation. Now, granted, some are better than others. And I am supremely grateful to live in the country I live in. I actually don't want to live anywhere else in the world. I love my country despite all her flaws. I stand for our flag. I do. I don't know of another country except possibly England that has a richer Christian heritage and influence than the United States. It's wonderful. But if I ask God, whose side are you on? All right, God's answer is not going to be, well, I take the side of the United States no matter what. Any more than he took the side of Israel no matter what. What's his answer? Neither. So whose side is God really on then? In Romans 8, Paul explains what happens as a result of our justification. We are granted a whole new life in the Spirit. And what does that look like? Well, look at what Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What things? Pain and suffering in its creation. What then, Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? Look at the next words. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, friends, whose side has God on? Well, in this case, God is clearly on the side of the believer. Now, that, of course, does not mean that every action we engage in is just and holy. No, no. Nor does it mean that God is going to grant me every desire of my heart like a genie in a bottle. Not at all. In fact, if you look just back at verse 18, Paul is speaking of the possibility of Christian suffering. Nevertheless, even in trouble and turmoil, guess what? God is for me. God is for us. And how do we know that God really is for us? Well, keep reading verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, what Paul is saying here is this. If God gave us his own dearly beloved son through grueling, through a horrific sacrifice, on the cross. Don't you think God is for you? Don't you think God cares about you? He gave his own son for you. And friends, that really was God's agenda for the whole Old Testament. It wasn't Israel as an end in itself. That never was the case. Israel was a means to God's greater end of bringing his Messiah, his gospel into the world. That was God's agenda all along. And those who align themselves with that agenda, God is for them. God is on their side. Well then, does verse 32 apply to Ukrainian believers? Does verse 31 apply to Ukrainian believers? Absolutely. And it also applies to Russian believers who no doubt are appalled 
by what Mr. Putin is doing. Whose side was God on in the Second World War? How about German believers? Yes. How about Italian believers? Yes. How about Japanese believers? Yes. How about in King Philip's War? Was he for the Indian believers slaughtered by the pilgrims? Yes. And what about believers in dire circumstances in Ukraine today? Yes, God is for them. How do I know? Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Does that mean God is against us? No, verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, God is for the believer. That is God's agenda. He is raising up a whole body of worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation to join that angelic army in worship of His Son. And it really, truly is going to be a wonderful day, is it not, when Ukrainians and Russians, pilgrims and Native Americans, Israelites and Canaanites, lift up their voices with one anthem in praise of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So friends, how do we pray for those believers whom God is for? Well, frankly, sometimes we're not even sure quite what to say. If that's the case, look back at verse 26. I'm not even sure what to say on behalf of some of these Ukrainians. I saw a picture of a family that was worshiping. They were singing a hymn that we sing here. And there was a young girl, and she looked like my daughter. And I've been praying for that young girl every day. I don't know her name. I don't know who she is. But I don't really know what to say. I'm praying for protection, for preservation. But beyond that, I don't really know what to say to God. So look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Ever been there? I'm there all the time. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Friends, the same omnipresent Holy Spirit who is fully present in this room right now and in our hearts right now is fully present in the homes of Ukrainian believers. He's there in all of his omnipotent majesty He's right there in those homes of Ukrainians. He is in the bunker with them. He is on the battlefield with them. And the Spirit prays in a way that goes beyond all human words. The Spirit moves the requests and needs of our brothers and sisters to the Father in a way that our wispy breath cannot even do. And notice the word groaning. It depicts the Spirit as an emotional being who is intimately connected with his creation. It is a word full of pathos and affection. And the New Testament tells us the Holy Spirit can be grieved. 
the Holy Spirit can sorrow if the plight of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine moves you to tears, you cannot even begin to imagine the grief that it causes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has an emotional depth and a breath that we can no more fathom than we can measure out the oceans in a thimble. And that Spirit groans deeply in His inner emotional nature over our needs over our request. And when the Spirit is stirred down in the unfathomable abyss of His being, friends, He shares those identical emotions with the Father and with the Son. They are one. And He moves our request to the Father. So look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for Ukrainian believers, who can be against them? 